morning. How you guys doing? Cool. Very good. Very awake. It's all right. I'm three cups of coffee in, and I think I'm only halfway to my quota for today, so I understand. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 10, today. If you've got a Bible, open up there. We are right where we were last week. Um, we're doing this kind of spontaneous mini-series, looking for three weeks at different aspects of the story of Peter and Cornelius from the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up there. I would recommend that uh, if you weren't here last week, go back. It just went on the podcast this morning. We've had some technical difficulties with our recordings, but you can now go back and listen to last week if you missed it. This, uh, this framework that we're seeing in the book of Cornelius, or in the book of Cornelius, in the story of Cornelius, um, really, we need to look at each aspect of this for this to make sense. We're building together um, what's happening in this story and the implications of this story. So this sermon will make sense on its own. It'll make a lot more sense in the context of this sort of mini-series. Sound good? So um, it's on the podcast. Also, this is just worth saying often. And um, we've said it before. I want to say it again. A sermon does not exist on its own. It does not stand alone. Because the whole witness of Scripture is deep and profound and complicated. So a sermon exists within the ecosystem of Scripture and also within the ecosystem of what's taught within a church. Right? So we can't teach everything that's necessary in one sermon. So when we hear one thing taught, it sits within the ecosystem of the life of the community that sits within the story of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Make sense? Sound good? All right, Acts chapter 10. We're going to start reading in the second half of verse 23. Every once in a while, you work on a sermon that you know is going to make everybody, including yourself, uncomfortable. And that's this one. So uh, hope you're excited, because I am. The second half of Acts chapter, of, of verse 23. Gosh, my words are messed up today. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Pause. If there is a leader in the church or in Christianity that is keeping honor, not giving away honor, run away. Because the story of scripture says that those who have honor give it away. They do not keep it for themselves. Let's jump back in. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered three days ago. I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. 
We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your presence with us. And we remind ourselves again that we are here for you, to hear from you. Let what is from you and is faithful to your word be remembered. Let it be planted in our hearts. Let what is my opinions or thoughts or ideas be forgotten, be revealed so it can be rejected. The only name that matters today is the name of Jesus. So let that be the only name in our hearts this morning. We love you. Amen. In 2022, I experienced one of the hardest things that I've ever lived through. It was early April. It was late in an evening, 8 or 9 o'clock, as these things mostly are. They happen where you're going to have to deal with them late. I was um, at someone's house that I considered a friend. Um, you know, I hadn't known them terribly long, but I thought of them as, as a friend, someone that was, I could trust. Uh, I was with friends, people that I thought I could trust. And I, I would have never imagined that morning that when I went to that house to watch Duke play University of North Carolina in the final four in Mike Krzyzewski's greatest coach in the history of college basketball's final game, that I would watch my enemies in UNC defeat my beloved, lifelong, since I was a child, Duke Blue Devils in Coach Krzyzewski's last game. And not only that, in the home of a UNC fan. One of the hardest things I've ever, like, I was, I mean, some of you have been there, you know what it's like, you know, you're trying, you're looking at the ground, you don't want to make eye contact with people, you're looking for the exits, it doesn't feel safe anymore, it's just, you got to get out, right? Man, um, this is admittedly a trivial example, um, or at least most days I feel like it's trivial. Honestly, after the Duke-Clemson game last night, I didn't even want to open with this story because it hit a little too close to home. Um, But here's why I bring this up. The story we just read is a story of being in the presence of enemies. The story that we just read is a story of two people who are, at minimum, culturally incompatible. But really, we can confidently say that at least according to society, they would be enemies. But it's a story of them coming into the presence of one another and into the presence of God. Here's how we know that. Peter 
is a traditional Jewish man. Peter is someone who has spent his entire life following the Jewish faith. What that means is that he has followed a specific code of living for his entire life. He has eaten specific things, worked on specific days, worn specific clothes. He has been circumcised. There are these things that have been core to his existence for his entire life. And he's part of a group of people that believes that their God has called them to be a blessing and a light to all nations. But for his entire lifetime, for his parents' entire lifetime, and for generations before that, this people with this core, distinct identity that is expressed in the way they look, in the way they dress, in the way they talk, in things that are unique to them, this identity has been threatened by governing authorities, by the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire before that, and the Persian Empire before that, and the Babylonian and Assyrian Empire before that. And this is a time in history in which most people, especially, especially leading up to this, people would have assumed that the might of a nation is reflected in the might of their god. So if your nation was defeated by another nation, it kind of meant your god had been defeated by another god which meant most people alive in this day who were Jewish culturally looked at the fact that they were under Roman rule as an offense to their identity and an indictment against their God. They wanted the Romans gone. This is who Peter is. Now, we we know that Peter is culturally, he's traditional, he's a conservative Jewish person. There's actually a schism going on at this time in history in Jewish culture between what we call Hellenized Jews and traditional Jews. Peter lived in Judea in the center of his cultural identity, and he has chosen to remain faithful to this cultural identity at a time when some people in his belief system have actually started adopting Roman and Greek culture around him. So he has chosen to remain faithful to this expression of the faith in the midst of cultural pressures around him. Now, some scholars look at Peter and they think that he is at least associated, we can at least connect him to a group of people that are called zealots. They would say Peter's probably not a zealot, but there's some things in his life that seem to align him that way. Now, zealots were a group of people that were basically a step below a militia in the Jewish faith. This was a group of people that were ready at any moment to be militarized to stand against the Roman Empire. Why? Because they believed it was an offense to their God and their belief system that Rome ruled over them. And they were willing to do anything in their power to restore the rule and glory of God. They thought God would receive glory when their people would receive power again. And in this story, Peter is in the home of a Roman centurion. Cornelius works for the Roman military. His job, his employment is in the Roman army, in the Roman army that serves the emperor, the emperor that many people looked at as the son of God, the the emperor that would often be proclaimed, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, as the son of God, the emperor who swearing allegiance to that emperor meant saying Caesar is Lord, which is why it's so significant in the New Testament that the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, because to claim Jesus as Lord meant Caesar couldn't be Lord. Cornelius worked for the military that enforced the rule of Caesar who viewed himself as divine and claimed his lordship over the people around him. Now we know from other parts of the story that Cornelius was considered a God-fearing Gentile, which meant he had sympathy 
towards the Jewish people. He might have worshipped or prayed to Yahweh, maybe exclusively, maybe in addition to the Roman gods. But we know that that didn't quell the tension. Because even though Peter knows this, he still makes it clear, it is against my law, it's against my custom to even visit you. I shouldn't even be in your house. Peter and Cornelius are culturally incompatible people. They are literally working for opposing forces in the world. Cornelius is working for the enemy of the Jewish people. Peter is traditionally Jewish. But they come together, and this remarkable thing happens. We talked about last week how Peter is having his conceptions of how God works in the world challenged, and he's choosing to be curious to see what the Holy Spirit's going to do. So he goes to this place because he had this vision in which God showed him that the, the dividing line of clean and unclean is now in the cross rather than in the custom. So Peter goes and he begins preaching the gospel, not knowing what's going to happen, but he preaches the gospel out of, out of faithfulness to what the Holy Spirit's doing in front of him. And this incredible, remarkable, unprecedented thing happens. The Holy Spirit falls on these uncircumcised believers. The Holy Spirit comes. Now, here's why that's significant. Because for generations, the mark of family, the mark of affiliation with the people of God was following the Jewish law. It was circumcision, it was Sabbath laws, it was dietary laws, it was being culturally affiliated with the Jewish people. This was the last name. This was how you could tell who was part of the family. You could look on a a Sabbath day and see who was who, obviously, and clearly it was blatantly divided. But as the Jesus movement takes off and the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, this other thing starts happening. Jews who decide to believe in Jesus as Messiah are marked in a different way. The Holy Spirit comes as affirmation that they have come under the lordship of Jesus. The Holy Spirit fills them, showing reconciliation to God and showing that they have come to come into the way of Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit falls on these uncircumcised believers, here's what's happening. These uncircumcised believers, these Gentiles, these cultural enemies are being marked in the same family mark that the people of God are. They're being included into the family even though they are culturally incompatible. It's absolutely unprecedented. In fact, in this story, we see that the Holy Spirit moves outside of the typical order because in every other place in the New Testament, believers are baptized, then the Holy Spirit comes. But in order to affirm that even these people who are excluded from the family are included through the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit actually comes before baptism in this story. It's unprecedented. It's remarkable. It's people who are enemies in the presence of one another in the presence of God. Following Jesus requires being family, being neighbors, including in our care and concern and compassion, in our homes and in our lives. Following Jesus requires being family with those that we do not like, those that we deeply disagree with, those that we are culturally incompatible with, 
and even those that we consider enemies. Following Jesus requires being family across the dividing lines of culture. I told you we were going to get a little bit uncomfortable today. I kind of figure if we're going to talk about it, then we should just talk about it. Like, we should just go all the way, right? We shouldn't dance around it. We should just dive in. So this is, this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Just buckle up. Um, over the last 10 years or so of being in ministry, I've had a fairly diverse experience. I don't mean that as a weird flex or anything. I just mean I've been around a lot of people, a lot of different types of people. I've seen people in various cultures across the world. I've seen people from urban environments and suburban environments and a wide variety of theological and church strains. I've just been in a lot of sometimes very weird circumstances in the course of ministry, which anyone who's been in ministry for a while can say that that happens. And uh, here's something that I've noticed. If, if I look back and I think back on people that I know, and, and I would say people that I, I would look at and I would say the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. Jesus said that you will know a tree by its fruit. And then Paul wrote that the fruit of the Spirit is these things. The Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives. So I'm thinking of people that I would say, the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life. I am confident. You're not perfect. You're not above failure. But you are living under the power, under the lordship of Jesus, and you're pursuing discipleship. I just want to go through some of the different types of people that I can easily think of that I would say, you're living under the lordship of Jesus. I see fruit of the Spirit in your life. I can think of of hunters, people that actively and primarily participate in hunting as a hobby or as a profession, and people who who would say that that this activity of actually killing an animal is part of their spirituality, that it's the way that they interact with the created order. Um, They believe that they connect with God in the silence of the world around them. Um, It's a spiritual practice for them. And I can think of people that are practically ethical vegans. That actually it's because of their faith in Jesus and their commitment to his way that they believe that the way of Jesus is incompatible or inconsistent with anything that would bring pain or death into the world. So they don't eat meat or use animal products. I can think of people from a variety of theological strains, people who are extravagant and decadent in worship that would make, most, like, make the experience of the fold make us a little bit uncomfortable. And I can think of people who would feel wildly uncomfortable in the fold because we're way too expressive for them. That I would say, man, the Holy Spirit's evident in your life. I can think of people who, who preach shouting and jumping and running around the stage. And I can think of a friend of mine who preaches in a suit and tie standing behind a pulpit reading a script. I can think of people who are musicians and they're gifted and talented and they, they believe that using worship and music creatively and they're loud and expressive and it's beautiful and they believe it reflects and points to the creativity and the glory of God. And I can think of people who believe that music really is a distraction from the glory of the God. So they only have piano accompaniments so that nothing could get in the way of the pure words of praise. I can think of people who vote the Democratic line at every election. I can think of people who vote the Republican line at every election. I can think of people who vote the Libertarian line at every election. I can think of people who are conscientious objectors to the idea of participating in elections. I can think of people who are politically and socially, like, self-identify as socialists. (laughs) 
and I can think of people who believe that uh, free market capitalism was given by God to the world. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating in that. I can think of people who believe that pretty much every president since I've been alive was either sent by Satan or sent by God. I can think of people that I just don't like. Can I just be honest about that? I can think of people that I don't have anything in common with and I don't enjoy spending time with them. But the fruit of the Spirit's evident in their life. And they're coming under the Lordship of Jesus. I can think of people that we disagree on theology in such a way that I probably wouldn't go to their church, but I can't exclude them from my family. I can think of people in pretty much every strata of society. I can think of people who are urban. I can think of, uh, of someone who planted a hip-hop church where they literally rap the worship songs. And I can think of people who think that rap is not godly. <laughs> and just for the record, if I haven't gotten to something that like makes you a little bit uncomfortable yet, I just don't have time to go through the whole list. So just consider yourself uncomfortable. <laughs> If we had time, we would get there. Now, whenever we start talking about something like this, the same thing I said last week, it's, it can feel like, because we start touching on something I don't like, we start touching on something you don't like, right? We, I, we say something that goes against our perspectives and opinions in the world, and it can start to feel like affirmation. It can start to feel like I'm saying something like, all of these belief systems are perfectly equal and they're perfectly godly and everything I said in this list should just be accepted outright and it's all fine. That's not what I'm saying. I listed off things that I strongly disagree with, things that I strongly agree with, and things that I do not have an opinion about at all. The point is not that all belief systems are fine and equal. The point is that we are united in Jesus and that what unites us in Jesus is greater than what divides us in culture. What unites us in Jesus is greater than what divides us in culture, which means we do not have the authority as followers of Jesus to consider a human being an enemy or to consider a human being incompatible because we are aligned in Christ. Listen, Cornelius worked for the Roman military. Roman culture was one of the most immoral cultures that has existed in human history. If you go back and do some research about it, like people talk about how the world's falling apart today, Rome was awful. Rome was like Vegas and Amsterdam times five, and everybody has a sword. Like, it was worse, right? It was extremely violent. It was extremely sexual. It was extremely corrupt. This is the culture in which it's like, all right, get the kids. They've got the lions at the Colosseum. Let's go. Like, that's the culture, okay? Gladiatorial games happened in Rome. This is not an affirmation of the Roman Empire. Peter agreeing that Cornelius is part of the family is not an affirmation of the Roman military. He's not saying now it's fine to go to the gladiatorial games. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying we've both come under the lordship of Jesus. We're both now pursuing Jesus, and we're both different and distant from Jesus, but the goal is not uniformity. The goal is unity. And what unites us in the cross, in fact, it's very explicit if you keep reading in the New Testament. Because Paul said in Ephesians that the cross has destroyed the barrier which divides so that out of the two I am making a new temple that's built on Christ as the cornerstone. 
But he also said in the book of Corinthians, when there was a man who was living in blatant rebellion against the ways of the Lord, that everyone in the church and actually everyone outside of the church knew that this was a destructive habit, he says that guy actually needs to be cut off from the church. It's a very strange and very like, offensive language because he says, turn him over to Satan to save his soul, which is, like, I don't really like that terminology, but it's in the Bible. And really what he means by that is that this guy's doing something so destructive that you can't keep allowing it to happen. Let him see how bad his sin is. Like, let him see how bad it is so that hopefully he'll change his mind. So we're not affirming some sort of, we're not affirming sin. We're not affirming every perspective. What we're saying is we have Jesus in common and Jesus is the king of everything. So your politics submit to Jesus and your economics submit to Jesus and your culture submits to Jesus and all of it submits to Jesus. What, what social justice movement you're involved in submits to Jesus. What social justice movement you hate submits to Jesus. It all submits to Jesus. We do not have the luxury of enemies in the kingdom of God. And just like we said last week, as millennials, we really like to think of ourselves as like the least judgmental generation ever. We only judge the generations before us. We only judge the people we think are judgmental. So for us, it's easier for us to look at people who look, dress, act, and talk and vote differently if they're our age. It's very hard for us to look at like the people that we grew up with, and say, you get the same mercy I do. Because <laughs> we think we're right, just as much as everyone else does. That's why I think Peter is actually the most interesting person in this story. Because Peter is the one, Cornelius is clearly on the outside, right? Cornelius is a Roman uh, centurion in, in the army. He's clearly on the outside of the people of God, but Peter is the one who is on the inside. He has the rights, right? He's the insider in the people of God, but he's also the one who is realizing that his perception of how God works in the world is being completely disrupted. And what's interesting is that if you look later at the life of Peter, what you see is that his mind was changed in this story, but his heart wasn't changed yet because later on he winds up behaving with prejudice towards Gentiles and he has to get confronted by another church leader very publicly so that he repents of his prejudice. So the idea is not that everybody's just fine where we're at. The idea is that you don't have to become like me for us to follow Jesus. The idea is that we both are acknowledging in the lordship of Jesus that we are unlike Jesus in certain ways. And the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to one another. So I'm not concerned with making you look like me or act like me in order for us to be family. I'm I'm concerned with us moving towards Jesus and me repenting of my own sin. Me repenting of my own sin. I'm not concerned with pointing out all of yours, though there is place in the church for confrontation and encouragement and conviction and exhortation. There's certainly part of that, but it's as family, not so you can be part of the family, right? It's going to someone that you love and care about and saying, hey, I think this thing is killing you. It's not saying get your act together or get out. It's different. What we have in common in Jesus is far greater than what divides us. We are required as followers of Jesus, to be family, to be compassionate and concerned and included in our circles and present with people that we would think of as enemies, people that we don't like, people that we disagree with, people that we are culturally incompatible with, because what unites us is far greater than what divides us. Now, before I'm done, there's, there's a problem with unity sermons, and it's that they get us hype because we're all like, yeah, let's be unified. We don't do anything about them. 
And oftentimes they wind up as ways just to overlook injustice and overlook one another's lived experience and overlook the real problems that are in the world because we just shout unity instead of dealing with the things that are creating disunity. So I just, I want to, I want to make sure that we're providing not an easy application. Um, the Bible is not full of easy applications or, or three-step plans. The Bible is full of concepts that invite us to wrestle with our, our own experience and our own life. It's full of stories that challenge the way we interact with the world. It's full of instructions that we must consider and wrestle with how they're applied to our lives, right? It's not meant to be simple. So I want to I offer just a thought of how we can embrace family across these dividing lines. Um, and in order to do so, I figured I would use a very controversial philosopher, <laughs> a quote from him, to do that. Uh, it's going to be up here on the screen. He's a philosopher. He's very controversial, but he said at least one thing that I think is uh, helpful. Um, his name is Martin Heidegger. He said this, Every man is born as many men and dies as a single one. Another way that that idea has been expressed is, In every child, there's a thousand men. In every man, there's a single child. What that means is that when we're young, there are myriad experiences that we can encounter in life. We could meet this person. We could have this experience. We could go in this direction. We could encounter Jesus at a young age, or we can encounter Jesus much later in life. And all of these things affect the trajectory of our lives. But right now at your life, it is one set of experiences that has led you to where you are right now. Make sense? You tracking with me? When we're young... There are many different stories we could live into the future, but there's only one story that we've lived up to this point. So what that means is there are people that we look at and we say, how in the world could you ever think that? But it's because we've lived a different life than them. That's not to say they're right. Hear me say that. That's not to say that that person is right, but that's to say that empathy and family requires that I would say, not how dare you think that, but tell me how you got to that conclusion. Tell me your story. I want to know what led you to this place so that I can understand why somebody would think that way. And through that, you might realize you were right the whole time. But through that, you'll probably realize you were both wrong at least a little bit and be, recon- and be more closely aligned with the way of Jesus. This is a beautiful, practical way in which we can be family, is to look at the people we differ from, and rather than saying, how dare you, here are the things that are different, say, tell me your story. I want to know what things in your life led you to that conclusion. I want to know what growing up in that neighborhood was like. I want to know what growing up in that family was like. I want to know what growing up in that culture or that part of the world was like. I want to know what that experience was like and how it shaped your thinking. Once again, it's not affirming every way of thinking. It's just affirming that there are people that think that way for a reason and the other people aren't stupid for thinking differently than we are. (laughs) They're just different. And in doing so, we can both then pursue Jesus. We can both pursue the objective thing that we are pursuing and acknowledge the subjectiveness of our lives as we pursue Jesus. Because we, as people of God, are people united under the cross of Jesus, invited more and more deeply into the way of Jesus, which requires us to be family with one another. Not affirming 
sin and destruction in the lives of people around us, but loving them anyway, valuing them as people, and inviting all of us to pursue Jesus together. Amen? This is an uncomfortable thing to live, just so you know. But I believe it is the way of Jesus. And I believe the way of Jesus is worth the discomfort. In it, we find something more beautiful. In it, we all find something better. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that we can come under your lordship and under your authority. We praise you that though our differences and the lives we live are are real and they're part of us, that we are still called to you. We are called to repent of where we're at and pursue you, to surrender to your lordship and come under your ways. And we thank you that you do not let our sins, current or past, exclude us, but you are good enough to invite us more deeply into your ways. You are good enough to tell us about repentance. So Jesus, I ask that we would be people that are willing to be unified in the cross. I ask that we would be people who are willing to do the difficult work of listening to and sitting with, being in the presence of people that we disagree with, that we don't like. And that we would see that you invite all of us into something better. God, we thank you that you are a good father who understands where we're at, loves us anyway, and invites us into something May we continually invite people into your family and into your way. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and worship together.